think of this word democracy. Democracy. Crazy demo. Demonstration of craze. Crazy demonstration. Testing one, two, three. Welcome, welcome, and welcome back to the Political Baby Podcast brought to you by your truly Maro, aka Political Baby, aka the Revolutionary Shorty. Now you already know why you're here. We're here to make academia sexy. Now, I know it's been a while since I've been behind the mic, but I am back and I am better with the season finale of the Political Baby podcast. Yep, you heard it. It is a two-part special and SARS edition to close up a fantastic season one, and I am so excited. Now, by the time you hear this episode, the festivities would have kicked in, and that's amazing, but I implore you not to forget, NSARS is not just a hashtag, it is not a trend or a phase, but it is a dynamic movement. We have to keep the momentum up. There are still questions we don't have answers to yet, like who gave the order on the 20th of October 2020. People are still fighting to implement the 545 demands. People are still fighting for the end to bad governance. So I'm going to do a refresher and play a clip by DJ Switch. Now she was instrumental in documenting the horrors of the Lekito Gate massacre on her Instagram live. And she is recounting what happened to the International Criminal Court. So take a listen. We're tired. And for the first time, I saw Nigerians stand for each other in protest all over the country. End SARS. Now, SARS is the Special Anti-Robbery Squad Unit, which the government rebranded to SWAT after disbanding the said SARS over three times and twice in one year. SARS have a track record of more daylight robbery than actual robbers. They've murdered more innocent citizens than murderers in in the society, more rape than the public is even aware of constantly exhibiting their lack of intelligence and training by harassing Nigerians, either because of how we look, the hair we have, the cars we drive, or if we have tattoos on our bodies. When you speak up and ask what you may have done wrong, they beat you up, lock you up, or kill you altogether. Now, this gave birth to a movement, and SARS, a movement against police brutality, which has since become a much bigger movement against bad governance. And the reason is simple. From the president, General Muhammadu Buhari downwards, they are all SARS. You see, because this is a government, yes, that would rather silence and kill its citizens rather than be guided by their concerns and their cries. The same government that chose to inject rogue elements into peaceful protests rather than protect its people, but choose to cuddle terrorists. It is the same government that froze the accounts of protesters and seized passports, but cannot seem to trace the accounts that sponsor terrorism. It states in the constitution that the security and welfare of the Nigerian people is the primary purpose of the government. But on the 20th of October, 2020, 
The Nigerian army, sanctioned by the government, stormed the Lekki toll gate in, in what I call a first wave of assault. No warning, no dialogue, just gone. Now, you just heard from DJ Switch detailing the horrors of the Lekki Tollgate massacre, as well as qualifying the political environment that birthed the NSARS movement. Now, we are live with episode 7, titled Ino Finish, which is inspired after Faust's song. And this is just a reminder that although months have passed, Aluta continua, the struggle continues because Ino Finish. The episode is about the NSARS movement, obviously. It is also about the precarity of protesting in Nigeria, the role of Nigerian feminists, the integration of cryptocurrency in Nigerian activism, and lastly, the intersection of politics politics and pop culture. <sighs> that was a mouthful. Now, before I introduce this powerhouse, we're going on a quick break. So stay tuned. Don't touch that dial. Welcome back. And now <laughs> it's time to introduce this powerhouse. I'm not sure if I'll be able to do her justice, but I will give it a, a good try. Now, she is an experienced social and community development specialist with a specific focus on gender issues and analytical skills in gender, in gender relations. She convenes Arewa Me Too and hashtag North Normal, which stands against sexual and gender-based violence in Nigeria, particularly in the North. She is bringing the Me Too movement to the conservative northern region of Nigeria. She has been featured on several international media outlets. You know what, guys? Her CV is serious. So I'm going to just end it here by saying she's also the founding member of the Feminist Coalition. And I'm so happy to have a seasoned activist here with us on the Political Baby Show. So please welcome Fakria Hashim. Hi, um, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm quite excited to be here and looking forward to a very constructive conversation. <laughs> I'm blushing and I'm super honored to have you here. Now, I am extremely excited, so I'm just going to dive right in. One really, I think, amazing thing with the NSARS movement is that it stirred up this conversation about the Nigerian dream or the lack thereof. So what that entails, what that should look like. You know, when they talk about, for example, the American dream, there is an instant recognition, an instant understanding of what that is. You know, this idea of the land of the free and whatnot. So I think with that said, I want to ask you, what do you think the Nigerian dream is to you? Say the Nigerian dream is being able to hold um, public office holders accountable. I think accountability um, is one of the greatest pillars of, of a democracy. Um, and it showcases itself in, in so many different ways, right? Um, in the accountability of, of um, public resources, um, of um, you know the 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 way 
um, office holders actually carry themselves, um, how they interact with um, society and their communities. Um, just the belief that, you know, they've been put there by people and they need to be accountable to those same people. I think for me, um, it seems like the, you know, the little things, but I think makes um, the greatest difference. This idea of accountability is very powerful. And whilst it may be extremely basic to many, in the Nigerian context, it is very important because the relationship between political authority and citizens is quite rigid. There's this excessive level of deference and untouchability that means that political authority are not held accountable. Accountability is a myth in our political framework. So I do think that's, in fact, I think that's a huge idea that should be I think, embedded in our Nigerian dream or how we construct the Nigerian dream to be. My view of a Nigerian dream, and I know this is quite idealistic, is to see a feminist Nigeria. <laughs> I feel like fem a feminist Nigeria would change how the nation operates. So everything from leadership to education to even how we see the family unit. And I think speaking of feminism, Feminist Coalition has been quite active in the movement, basically. And one thing that I love about the coalition is how explicitly feminist they are and how intersectional they are and liberal. But that's quite ironic and almost out of place in a very conservative nation like Nigeria. In fact, I remember that Femco put out a statement in support of the LGBTQ plus protesters that were facing prejudice. And, you know, that got a lot of backlash from, you know, more conservative Nigerians and they had to take down the post. So my question is, do you think that, for example, Femco or people in general would have to downplay their intersectionality, their liberalism to accommodate for the conservatism of Nigerians? It might have to. Um, I, I will give you an, an example of uh, my deeply personal experience with um, Nigeria's conservatism. Um, during IOMI2, um, which you know is uh, mostly concentrated um, on northern Nigeria um, and there were rumors, there were actually just rumors that um, what we're trying to do is, um, you know, make the advocacy for LGBTQ rights uh, mainstream in northern Nigeria, um, which had absolutely nothing to do with um, gender-based violence. And because of that, um, we received a lot of backlash over something that wasn't even true because um, gender-based violence and LGBTQ are very much world, worlds apart. Um, so, I mean, that led to um, attacks, even physical attacks to uh, on one of the people um, that was out there marching in Sokoto State 
um, during the 2019 16 days of activ uh, activism against gender-based violence. So, I mean, it, it's it's about understanding that the, the Nigerian society is very much hostile mm -hmm. towards that community. And what they've shown is that they would isolate you and they would isolate your message um, if you try to conflate the two. Um, so I, I guess it's about weighing what's what's more important, right? Um, you know, and how how deeply connected to your message is, um, you know, the the LGBTQ issue. And if it is, then you know you'd have to weigh in. Um, so I mean, you know, Nigeria is not an easy place to deal with, especially politically, even as women. So adding, um, you know, other factors uh, just makes it a lot more complex. Uh, I'm not saying that it cannot be contended, um, but, you know, you, you just have to understand what you're facing. Yeah, I completely agree with you. You know, moving in the political landscape as a young person, already pushing the status quo, you're navigating a very precarious environment and then you add all the added factors of being liberal being feminist being intersectional which increases the stakes and i think i could only pray and hope as a nation we move past the need for certain margins of society to be seen as collateral damage um but i think that's just the danger and some of the consequences of this kind of conservative environment. Um, speaking of explicitly intersectional and explicit feminism, Nigerian feminists played a huge and instrumental role in the NSARS movement. Individual feminists, women in general, feminist coalition, um, so my question is, do you think that huge role that women had to play is possibly sensitizing the Nigerian public to be more sympathetic or more educated about feminism? Certainly coming out as um, a feminist coalition um, definitely served the purpose of um, enlightening people, even winning acceptance to a degree. Um, I mean, you understand how um, hostile Nigerian men and just mm -hmm. the average Nigerian is to um, the concept of feminism. And, you know, seeing that um, this initiative uh, came out and it was blatantly under the guise of feminism, um, it was, you know, it became a bit hard for uh, the average Nigerian to just um, dismiss, um, you know, what function um, these people were coming out to serve, because you know, for, uh, you know, they were seeing, oh, okay, so you know, uh, feminists actually care about, um, you know, men too, because you know, the Enzas protest wasn't. Um, just about the women had been that had been victims of, of um, SARS and other police brutality, but 
um, has also uh, affected men and knowing fully well that this is a more um, uh, a more you know general issue you know the feminist coalition still decided to come out um, I, I think it has um, definitely bent um, even the most unbendable minds um, mm -hmm. out there um, it has created a space for um, understanding, to say the least. Um, and there has been a degree of acceptance uh, amongst, you know, the average hostile um, conservatist. I really love your optimism in regards to how you perceive Nigerians being increasingly sensitized to feminism. You played an instrumental role in convening hashtag Arewa Me Too, which was based on sexual assault cases in the North, and as well as playing a pivotal role in the NSARS movement. So you have navigated the political terrains of both the North and the South. So I just have to ask about the North and South divide. Now, as many of you know, Nigeria is divided along several different lines, one of them being a geopolitical divide along the North and the South. Now, I think one of the amazing things with the NSARS movement is that I have never seen that level of cohesion among Nigerians. Um, however, there were still attempts. Obviously, these attempts were external to the protesters themselves. But to rehash this, these conflicts, um, some of the tools used in doing this was, number one, I think there was a critique um, that the NSARS movement was very much centered around Southern stories. And I think hashtag Secure North started to trend in reaction to that. So that this idea that Southerners don't care about Northern insecurity on, or you kind of the Northern challenges that they have been facing over many years. Then number two, we have Adam Garba, who was a former presidential aspirant. He released a very inflammatory video inciting these divides. Then thirdly, we had just a general critique about how the NSARS movement was an attempt by the South to topple the Northern presidency. Now, I was sitting in some conversations in Clubhouse. Now, you guys know I am a huge fan of Clubhouse. But I was sitting in some conversations in Clubhouse, and there are some rooms talking about how young people can reconcile this divide and how do we get the North and South at some midpoint. So I just wanted to ask you what you think the way forward it could be as it pertains to the North-South divide and how that might possibly look like. Um, one of the main reasons is that um, we have no um, respect for nuance. Mm. Um, we dismiss the importance of that understanding of, of nuance, of how different issues affect different communities very differently, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and I, I think, um, uh, you know, both uh, Southerners and Northerners um, are very much guilty of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, my, my opinion, you know, throughout um, that period was that, um, you know, the SARS and police brutality is is not a one brush paint all um, an issue. Um, in in southern Nigeria, it, it is more um, blatant. It is more out there. Um, whereas in northern Nigeria, 
it actually takes um, in Nigeria, it takes many different shapes um, of insecurity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it presents itself um, in a way that it is not particularly um, very similar to what we see in in southern Nigeria, because many other factors do come into play. Um, so you know, I I I, I wish we had um, that you know um, deep introspection of how these issues affect our very unique communities, uh, and you know that would have um, allowed us to engage ourselves uh, better. And it doesn't help that um, the governor of of Brno came out and said that um, the SAS operators should be sent to 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 Brno because uh, I believe what in, what that did in turn was undermine um, you know the gravity of police brutality, especially in the south. Yeah. Um, uh, I find it to be a statement that is very devoid of reasoning because what makes you think that these same SAS operatives wouldn't do the same <clears throat> thing? Um, I mean, <coughs> they, by nature, they live to extort Nigerians. So what makes you think that if you relocate them, yeah. that would uh, suddenly lead to a change of um, mode of operation. So, you know, um, and, you know, um, and I guess, you know, it also plays out as this um, typical southern-northern divide um, that is further exasperated by the fact that the presidency is is northern. So there's always um, that issue of distrust that, you know, these people are coming out um, to overthrow um, a northern president because mm-hmm. the truth is we never see our presidents as just Nigerian presidents. We see yeah. them as southern presidents or northern presidents. And it's, very, it's, a, it's a very legitimate um, uh, way to perceive these issues because we have seen how uh, when, whenever a president, um, I think um, the least of, 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 of that was showcased with, with Obasanjo. But other presidents that um, came after, uh, especially with Jonathan and, and uh, Buhari, we have seen how, you know, they've populated um, various critical agencies, especially intelligence and security mm-hmm. agencies, with people from um, from their region uh, because of this um, issue of, of distrust. Yeah. So it plays out in... in you know, government agencies, it plays out everywhere. So why why would you expect it to not play out in, in the public space? Mm-hmm. Those are the things that we saw, you know, during the NSAS protest that, you know, um, people were very wary of where NSAS originated from. Was, uh, you know, was this something um, that was being supported from behind uh, by Southern politicians was was this a bid to um, overthrow or you know you know get the the current administration to resign? Hundred percent. There is a lack of nuance when it comes to the north south divide and also the peculiar 
challenges that the North and the South face as, you know, very distinctive regions. Now, going back to Adam Garba's video, kind of inciting these geopolitical divides, I think that stirred up the ongoing conversation. I have seen many takes, have been in a lot of clubhouse rooms, but even before that, there has been this long-standing tension and this long conversation about should there be a divide between the North and the South, i.e. should they be two distinct countries? Um, And I always roll my eyes because I do find that conversation rather unhelpful. (laughs) Um, I feel like that is in the way forward. But I just wanted to hear your thoughts. Is this something that Nigerians should even talk about and maybe just get out of their system? Or we should... I think nip in the bud any form of divisive conversations like this. Do you think this is divisive or do you think this is a helpful political discourse to have at all? What do you think? Um, so I do believe that we need to start, um, we need to imbibe this idea of starving um, certain people of, of a voice. Mm-hmm. Because um, what I've what I've come to realize is that um, by uh, pro, you know by projecting um, the voices of these very divisive uh, figures, what we're essentially doing is add more fuel to that fire that's been brewing for decades. And when 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 we decide to focus a lot of attention on people like him, we're emboldening the bigotry mm. that he comes with. And I, I certainly don't. Um, any anyone that I believe to be a bigot, I do not engage um, uh, their discussions or you know their furtherance of bigotry. I, I do not condemn them. Um, in that sense, if I have to, I do not point to the posts um, that they've pushed out there to to cause rancor. And we, we need to be able to do that because we're essentially making, making you know, these people that are very devoid of, of sense and, and empathy, we're giving them, you know, we're carving out a, a niche for them. We're giving them a space. Yeah. I agree with what you said about starving bigots of attention and engagement, and that's particularly powerful. Now, we're going to switch gears a little bit, and we're going to look at foreign involvement in this movement. Now, Nigerians in the UK started to sign petitions calling for the UK government to sanction individual government officials who have violated the human rights of its citizens. Now, this gathered about 220,000 signatures and was debated in Parliament on the 23rd of November 2020. Now, whilst it got a lot of support, evidently, there was also a bit of disquiet for several reasons. Firstly, many cited Audre Lorde. Now, Audre Lorde was a writer, poet, activist, and essayist. And the famous quote the master tool, the master's tools can never dismantle the master's house. And they point to the history of the police force and police units being a colonial Western antique that was adopted or rather imported by Africans. So there's this almost a bit of irony asking, 
the British or the UK to save us from the same thing we imported from them. And I think they support this point with the recent development where Kate Osamore, who is a member of the UK Parliament, so she's wrote to seek clarification on the nature of aid, training, and funding that the UK extended to the uh, SARS unit. So I think that's what brought up the controversy as well. So I just want to know your thoughts and what camp you are in. Are you in support of this petition? Do you think the neo-colonial argument is valid? I mean, what do you think? You know, it's also critical that, you know, we understand um, uh, the different layers of these things right um with regards to the uk's funding of um police initiatives um i'm quite familiar with that because um during my work around gender-based violence mm-hmm. we tried to coordinate um responses to see how we can actively strengthen uh police capacity to deal with um gender-based violence um, and, and, you know, issues as such. So, um, you know, we, we did find that at that point that, um, you know, the British government um, has, uh, does fund a national policing program. And what that program concentrates mostly on is training police officers, not, you know, on com- not combative training, but on human rights issues, on how to deal with, you know, uh, civil civil situations and, and all of that. So um, I, I really wouldn't ascribe that to them funding, you know, the brutality of, of SARS, because the truth is without their level of funding, you would have an entire um, police force that is devoid of any human rights related trainings. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they just do not think it is important to sensitize their policemen uh, and women on human rights and how to um, de-escalate uh, situations that are tense, tense situations. So um, I, I, I do know for a fact that a lot of that funding went to that kind of training um, fostered by uh, local organizations like Clean Foundation, who has been working on police reform for more than a decade now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a very complex environment that they're, they're, they're dealing with. And with, you know, with regards to the, uh, you know, the calls for the UK to impose sanctions on um, individual Nigerian public officials, um, I, I really was in support of it. I, I still am, if anything is going to come to fruition, um, which I really don't believe will. Um, but um, I, I was in support of it because the Nigerian government only answers to in- international pressure. Yeah. And the Nigerian political elites are scared of being uh, banned, having visa bans and stuff and it's it's really things like this because what you're essentially doing is you're putting a cap on their freedom too right they put Mm -hmm. a cap on the the freedom of young protesters and knowing that there is someone above them 
that would impose the same on them and their families and that would affect them negatively, then I'm all for it. Mm. I mean, I, I know that we've been having all of these conversations um, around um, how this um, ties into our own call for these neo-colonialist yeah. um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, comebacks uh, and, and all of that. But, I mean, as legitimate as those concerns are, yeah. um, I, I don't really see that as being a huge factor in, in you know, punishing. Because what, what this is essentially is punishing politicians, right? Mm -hmm. Punishing government officials that have violated um, extensively the human rights of young protesters. So if what it takes is for um, a, a higher power to punish them in this world, then I'm all for it. The notion that, you know, um, policing is a very much Western um, antique is, is reaching. Mm -hmm. One of the arguments that <clears throat> that was making rounds was that the Nigerian police force as it is now is a colonial concept mm -hmm. yeah. right because it was created with um, with with the idea that you know the police are there to safeguard the 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 the, the goods mm -hmm. of you know, the British uh, colonials to ensure that um, there's move, there is a secure movement of goods and, and that, you know, that divide and conquer um, uh, I, the concept was very much in play. And the argument was that the Nigerian police force hasn't really transformed itself since, you know, the colonial times right mm. they haven't um transformed their their mode of operations how they relate uh with civilians and and communities how they essentially police thank you for that i think that shed a very new perspective you know like many people once i heard britain and you know police and funding and SARS in one sentence i was very quick to throw the neo-colonial argument. So it's really interesting seeing, I think, the involvement and the partnership with local NGOs in giving human rights training and whatnot. But another thing that I, another argument that I find very interesting that you raised, a point I mentioned, is that the Nigerian police sector should take accountability for its unwillingness to change and advance with the rest of the world in observing the human rights of its citizens. There's a very interesting political development I would like to highlight, which is the major role of cryptocurrency in the NSARS movement. Nigeria is the second largest Bitcoin market after the US. The use of cryptocurrency was an extremely large feature in this movement and the ability to help the movement and people within it to organize funds. Now, I think the transition is extremely interesting. We had the more traditional modes of payment failing. You know, banks were freezing accounts of organizers and collaborating directly with the CBN. Even more digital payment solutions 
you know, like Flutterwave or someone by the Central Bank of Nigeria, obviously to no fault of theirs, and donation accounts had to be suspended. So what we saw is that there were strategic efforts to suppress the support mechanisms of the NSARS movement. Then there was this transition to cryptocurrency, you know, um, and organizers were able to galvanize resources and funds through there. For example, the Feminist Coalition raised over $126,000 in cryptocurrency and 9.9 bitcoins, which they were able to fund over 154 protests around Nigeria. Now, you are someone who has been at the forefront of several activist campaigns. So I want to ask you, you know, just seeing the success of how crypto was integrated into this movement, do you foresee an increasing adoption, you know, in cryptocurrency across political movements, particularly in grassroots level activism? You know, grassroots organizing at the grassroots, that's um, a bit too advanced of, mm-hmm. of a technology because how do you, how do you, <laughs> um, you know, uh, dispense that you know across communities but um you know um it it you know as as we have seen during the NSAS protests it it played um a major role in the upper um uh, echelon of things and it, it is something that um can be very vital to social mm-hmm. movements as as we have seen um, if, you know, the structures are put in place um, where, you know, the access to the cryptocurrency uh, can be embedded somewhere, but would be able to penetrate through other parts of society to the grassroots, but not, not, not exactly having, you know, the grassroots movements deal mm-hmm. in cryptocurrency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would um, I would expect that from um, you know insurgents insurgency groups like Boko Haram because they tend to be um, advanced mm-hmm. um, in how they operate uh, with their weapons and and that and you know they are in fact ISWAP is is a global network mm-hmm. right so they probably do use it. To be honest, yeah, because that can be one explanation to how you know there hasn't been um, that very deep interrogation of where their funding comes from. We've also witnessed um, uh, this was in 2019. Um, um, I, I think a young lady was kidnapped in, in Abuja, and mm-hmm. her kidnappers demanded for cryptocurrency yeah they did mm. and it sent to them but wow. also the the, the 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 security agencies were able to actually track mm. the, the coins back to an individual there's also in us understanding that uh, crypto isn't as uh, isn't as mysterious anymore as as we make it out to be because the nigerian government is ramping up its capacity to be able to train uh, their offices to track and trace um, these these instruments, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with deeper and deeper advancement technology. Um, I, I think 
in, in the Israeli government is in part, um, you know, responsible for Nigeria's um, tech upgrading, mm-hmm. the security sector. So we have to uh, keep that in mind. Um, I, I think it, it really goes beyond just trying to hide where funding is coming from. And it, it, it's just starting to become more seamless than using you know, other uh, forms of, of currency. Now we're winding down the episode. Now NSARS is a very serious issue, but on a more lighthearted note, we saw the increasing intersection between politics and pop culture. We had both national and international celebrities raise a lot of awareness. We even saw international media platforms just cover the movement. For example, we have Elle featuring some of the founding members of Feminist Coalition. We also had Vogue feature some of the founding members of Feminist Coalition, as well as celebrity activists playing a central role as well. And, and I think this is quite exciting, we had Beyonce feature Feminist Coalition on her website. Did you say Beyonce? 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 You know what you know? <laughs> I, I don't mean to fangirl, but I definitely had a moment when I saw it. So I just wanted to firstly get how you felt and how you feel with a lot of, I think, engagement on with mainstream media. And also where you see the relationship between media, pop culture, and politics going forward and seeing that kind of intersection? You know, it was definitely something incredible to witness, um, the intersection of pop culture and and politics, which um, isn't really something um, new because we have seen um, how, you know, how the Black Lives Matter movement has been perpetuated by... Um, sorry, ha- has been projected uh, by um, by pop culture, right? By all of these private companies and um, uh, international artists, and 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 you know all of that. So um, I think um, the BLM definitely revolutionized revolutionized the intersection of pop culture and and politics um, and social issues. And that is becoming uh, more mainstream that companies are expected to get involved in in social political issues that artists um, are expected to use their platform to further good causes around them, to further the plights of um, communities that might... mm, that might be connected to them in some way or just taking up a cause to you know make better use of their platforms in addressing uh, social issues around the world uh, so I, I definitely think you know this is um, this this is an effective way of you know people um, using you know their their incredible platforms mm-hmm. to um, focus a lot more on social issues because social issues influence, um, you know, if, if, if you're an artist, it influences your music, um, especially if your community mm-hmm. is affected by it. So it only makes sense for you to be deeply involved, right? If you're a company, social issues do affect 
um, your mode of operating, right? Your um, revenue stream and all of that, it affects your business as a whole. So you have to understand that, um, you know, you also need to be a party to the restoration of, of civility. And that's essentially what it is. And with that said, this marks the end of the first half of the season finale in SARS edition. Thank you to my lovely guest, Fakria. Thank you to my political babies for being supportive throughout season one. A very, very successful season. Don't forget to leave a review, engage with the Instagram page at Political Baby Pod, and I'll be seeing you guys in the second half of the season finale by God's grace. So stay tuned.